Welcome to the Bibliographer Podcast with me, James Matthew Alston. In this episode, I'm joined by my very good friend, Holly Raines Elliott, to talk about Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. We discuss feminism in The Bell Jar and how Sylvia Plath was really ahead of her time, depression and how Sylvia Plath represented that in the novel, and how the novel is autobiographical in that Plath herself suffered from depression or perhaps bipolar disorder. And we also talk more generally about what we think of the novel why it means so much to us and why we love it so much. It's a slightly longer episode. It's over an hour because we talked for about two and a half hours and I did a lot of cutting. But particularly towards the end, I felt some of the insights that Holly could bring were really interesting and quite moving, actually. Around the 64-minute mark, she talks for a long time about the scene in the novel with Marco the woman-hater and how important that scene was to her, how she could relate to it. And it's a really beautiful monologue from her. So if you only listen to one part of this podcast, I recommend you skip forward to around the 64-and-a-half-minute mark and listen to what Holly has to say about that. And finally, as always... It does help if you have read Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar before listening to the podcast. Otherwise, lots of this may not make huge amounts of sense. So without further ado, I bring you Lorraine Elliott and Sylvia Plath. Are you nervous? Why would I be nervous? I don't know. I'm really nervous. I mean, yeah, the burden is on you here to make this good. I mean, it's also kind of on you. As I've said, I'm a mere guest on a... You're you're hosting me here. The guest makes the show, mate. I already know that. That's why I'm here. I'm here to save the day. (laughs) Talk about a book I've read. How many times now? Should we say maybe um, seven times, do you reckon? Have you really read it seven times? It's six or seven, definitely, over the course of, what, since... 2013, yeah. I, I mean, we must have spoken about it before then. Did you Almost recommend definitely. it to me or did I recommend it to I you? I can't remember. I know it was one way or the other. Yeah, it was one way <laughs> or the other. There's no doubt remember. that one of us was like, you should read this horrible book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is going to really speak to you. At the peak of our, like, <laughs> maybe a dip in our mental health, we were like, you know, this will really be good for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know whether you recommended it to me or not. Vice versa, but no, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. Well, so what I mean, what I thought was we could kind of do, I guess, like three different sections. I, I don't really mind about the order, but we'd do like one section on depression in the novel, obviously, and life, and yeah, and with us, yeah. if we want to talk about that, which might be interesting. Um, and then one section on feminism, and then it's sort of like a broader section just on kind of like what we thought of like the writing and style of the book. Let's start with, well, you just mentioned uh, that you said it was forgettable. So let's start with like a general kind of overview of the novel and like <laughs> the fact that you thought it was forgettable. What, what's so forgettable about it? The fact that there's no plot. So, so I've read it how many times? So I, I reckon it must be six, not seven. And then when we suggested doing it for this podcast, all, all I can ever remember is there's, uh, there's New York and suicide and... I, I can never remember like a narrative structure. No, I can't really remember what happens. Is that not sort of because kind of nothing happens? Right. So this is what's the best the best part of this was that um, I said to my gran I was reading it. My gran bought it and read it uh, in October. She read it in about three days and just put me to shame. Should have got her on the podcast. Yeah, I know. Um, and, she, and I said, what do you think of it? And 
she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this is really, I mean, verbatim, but this is what she said. She was like, yeah, um, it was good. It was, it was quite heavy, but I, she's like, I don't really remember what happened. And I was like, no one does. No one really remembers what happened. But here's what I think. I think it's essentially a diary, right? That's all the novel is really. It's just a chunk of, and because really it's autobiographical, isn't it? She's from Boston. Her dad died when she was young. There's just so many details which y- you can't ignore. The fact it's it's an autobiography essentially from a chunk of her life when she was younger. She even talks about like her Austrian grandmother, right? Which is like also completely right. factual. She's got she's got poetry about like her dad's kind of like German Austrian German heritage and stuff. Yeah, it's it's just it's very much an autobiography and a diary. And I think that's she just jumps from oh, I don't know being sad in New York to buddy willard and then it's it's a great start isn't it like that first chapter i really enjoy it was a queer sultry summer the summer they electrocuted the rosenbergs which also you know when she says the idea of being electrocuted makes me sick pretty on the nose foreshadowing right right and i knew we'd both write that we'd just be like right here we go Here, here she is with some context and some foreshadowing so basically are you saying that you think it's kind of boring no not at all but forget it like you know it's like I when I look back to it I think I enjoyed that um for some reason it's like close for some reason it's close to my heart I mean we'll get there for some reason (laughs) yeah wow but wonder why that would be but in terms of when you when you think back to like a story I don't have one all I see is this novel and it's just a tiny piece of plath that she's like pulled out from herself like that's all it is to me I felt that coming back to it I could relate to a lot more having spent time in New York and having, you know, been to university, and I'm sure there were parts of this that you could relate to. Coming back to it, like when you finish uni and you come home, and like you're and you're living in with your mother, and it's like, and you just yeah, and and there's a uh, there's so many you know when she talks about the fig tree and she can't decide and like I don't know she starves or and then there's also um where she's talking about a bunny rabbit um like jumping through her mind. It, it, it's a similar point um about the different lanes of her life and uh, I think like that's so much more relatable now because I had even reading some of these bits I had the shadow of relating it to this podcast and I thought I bet when you read that where she gets home from New York um, and she's like thinking about all of her avenues like um, just moving to different places and different career paths I bet you were like hmm I remember that. I mean, I ended up at Marks and Spencer for like four months when I finished. So like, Jesus Christ, (laughs) I was totally lost. Well, yeah, I remember that. Like, I remember you when you finished uni. I mean, I was like, yeah, I remember that period of your life. Um, Horrible six month period, man. Yeah. Yeah. And and she really takes it to the extreme. That's essentially where the book goes. She she's not even finished uni at this college at this point. It's just that, like, yeah. she can't... Well, is, is it after her second year, or...? I don't know, because, I mean, they normally do four years, right? Yeah. So it's not even like she's finished college, and she's, no. like, having this existential crisis. She's just home <laughs> for summer, and she's like, holy crap, I can't handle it. And then she <laughs> makes her way to, an, like, an asylum. Like, uh, it's... um. It's, it's relatable but extreme. But it was also... Did you not find it, like, such a huge, like, narrative jump... Like I, I found the narrative jump like really. So like when she's in New York in the first however many in the first what like I don't know maybe half of the 
of the book. She's 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 obviously not happy, but she doesn't seem anywhere near as depressed as she finally gets or like very suddenly gets when she's home. She's home and like suddenly she's just on this crazy downward spiral where, you know, towards the end of it, she like locks herself in that little like hole in the cellar and nearly kills her and tries to kill herself. And that almost, that almost came out of nowhere. There's a, there's a real escalation in the narrative gaps, right? For New York, we're with her pretty much every you know she updates us on what's happening day by day night by night oh I got cramp sorry (laughs) I mean it does start to jump as soon as she gets home but once she's had that first um session of ECT I think the narrative gaps start shortening then and I I don't know whether that's deliberate on her part um in terms of this the symptoms of having electroconvulsive therapy like whether that's meant to show that right like because the symptoms of what like lack of focus and confusion whether it's I don't know whether her writing got lazy or whether, but it it must be a deliberate attempt to, because when does she first have ECT with Dr. Gordon? Yeah, but that's when it doesn't work, right? The second time she has it, it like almost works. She talks about like this metaphorical bell jar having lifted a bit, which I found really interesting because I actually didn't, wasn't, I wasn't under the impression that it really worked particularly well. No, but I don't think ECT does work does it well i looked it up afterwards and it is still occasionally used in some instances because apparently it does still have i know it sounds so dreadful doesn't it but i mean she even writes in the novel like the second time it wasn't that bad like she passes out she comes to and she feels better but bear in mind that's in in an era where it was standard practice so it's the same as us saying this medication is helping I, i don't know like 60 years in the future um which, you know, what future? But um, 60 years in the future, they might look back and be like wild that they'd be like, oh, these drugs are helping them and really they're damaging this much. I don't know. I, I thought the the speed in which the narrative gaps started like happening. Because, you know, she'll be like, um, for example, in the last chapter where she loses her virginity, she's talking about something completely irrelevant. And she's just like, I met Erin <laughs> by the library. And you're just like, chill the fuck out like what's happening is it a symptom of her ECT like surely not a symptom of the ECT it seems at that point she just like doesn't really care about anything no but I mean in terms of her her mind jumping from one thing to the next is that the um you know there's a lack of focus that comes with it um oh what so you think she she like wrote it after the fact as if she was like going through it almost like she's trying to re- she's trying to represent what it felt like just purely through yeah. these like narrative jumps that's the only thing i can think of because it it speeds up so significantly as soon as she gets back not just when she gets back from new york but after she has that first um session of ect mm. that, that's the only thing that makes sense to me otherwise it's just like laziness it doesn't make sense to speed up the narrative that quickly well, it, it could be that she actually to some extent enjoyed herself in new york and therefore wanted to sort of like write more about it and what went on, especially as kind of I mean, maybe backdrop to how bad a time she had when she was back home. And therefore, all of the important stuff that happened to her when she was back home wasn't like going out with her mates and getting drunk and like, you know, getting sick of caviar. It was like the only important thing that happened to her was her being super depressed. Right, right. I mean, it makes you wonder how, how much of this is actually like how much like she'd written in her own diary that she could pull from this. She's like, oh, I missed a week there. Like, 
Because there's so many fine details in New York that actually happen. The hotel she stayed in. Did you did you look at that? It's the same. It's the actual hotel she stayed in. Here's some fun info. Okay. So they were staying in the novel. She's like, she calls it the Amazon Hotel, right? Which is a real hotel on the Upper East Side of Manhattan called the Barbizon, which only accepted women, like she said, when it was open in 1927 until the 80s. Right. People who have actually stayed there include Sylvia Plath, obviously, Grace Kelly, Liza Minnelli, Nancy Reagan, right? And then later, <laughs> Ricky Gervais and Boris Johnson. So, like, even down to the detail, it's literally her bloody diary. Her name has some relevance as well, right? The name she uses in it has some relevance to her as well. Like, was was the name, was it, like, her, you know, she uses loads of fake... This is one other thing I got, that she lies just, like, all the time through her teeth to so many people... And but she comes up with these fake names. And isn't is it maybe that the name she uses for her character in this was like a fake name that she used to really use or something? Yeah, because think about it. She uses Ellie Higginbottom, doesn't she? As like um, Esther uses that. And then there's also a part where she uses. I made note of this as well. Where she uses um, Elaine later on in the novel, and she's like, oh, it's six letters, like Esther. And then you're like, right, and Esther's six, like Sylvia. It's so meta. <laughs> there's, there's so much of it that's so meta in this. Like there's bits where she's talking about, um, where she's talking about when she's home and she's trying to write a novel and she's writing herself. I don't think we necessarily need to like prove that it's autobiographical there, do we? I, I thought that was, I thought that was like received, I thought that was common knowledge. Do you, you think there's like a debate around how autobiographical it is? Because I just read this as like a, sort of like a nicely written memoir. Well, so someone um, put out a book I think it was a book recently. I was reading, um, my grand like cuts out articles for me and she cut out like an article on um, a novel that has come out on Sylvia Plath, which is saying that the bell jar isn't autobiographical. Like they're saying like it's based on, but not. And it's like, well, obviously it's not an autobiography. Um, it's, it's so meta. It's like, where are the boundaries, right? Like if you just wrote your own autobiography, but you changed your name to like, I don't know, like, Molly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, how? Where's the boundaries? Like, oh, it's not me, but everything that happened to her actually did. Also, it's like, uh, maybe you don't know about. I don't know, but like the the newest Martin Amos novel that's come out. It's called Inside Story, and it's just got like direct references to like his friendship with Christopher Hitchens in it, and it's basically just his life, despite him having already written at least one memoir. Um, but he's called it a novel. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, like, it's not a novel. I mean, I guess the writer gets to decide, you know, do whatever they, do whatever they want. But the, the point of me saying that is in terms of, it's just a diary, isn't it? Like, there's the, I mean, how do you feel like it's written? Do you, do you enjoy the writing style? I think simultaneously it's boring <laughs> in a, in, like, in a similar way to how you said it. But it's boring in a way that I quite like. Like, firstly, it really, really reminded me of, like, J.D. Salinger. Well, I, I really love J.D. Salinger. But in his novels as well, especially Catcher in the Right, like literally nothing happens. Right. Um, I, but it's very, very similar in that sense. I don't know. It seems to be something really similar with lots of these like mid 20th century American novels where like sort of not huge amounts mm. happens, but they're kind of character studies. They're always like in some way like really, really horribly depressing. Mm. Um, so I, I do like the style. I also think it's really obvious that she's like first and foremostly a poet. I think there are just turns of phrases which almost make like in some sense no sense. <laughs> but but I find really, really beautiful 
One of my favourites. I'm just going to find it. In my edition, anyway, it's on page 140. It's uh, when she's, like, uh, with Dodo and her mum, like, sitting in... Are they? I think they're in a cab, and they're, they're, she's been already... Oh, they're in Dodo's big old car, yeah. Her, uh... Oh, yeah, the station wagon. Yeah, yeah. And it, just the line is... Um, uh, sitting in the front seat between Dodo and my mother, I felt dumb and subdued. Every time I tried to concentrate, my mind glided off like a skater into a large empty space and pirouetted there absently. I think I, I really, really, that's, I remember the first time I read it, I was like, wow, that's such an amazing line. And I just think that really shows like that she was a poet more than a prose writer, because those are the types of, that's the type of thing you could, that line you could hear in a poem. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I can see that. I enjoy her, um, her imagery, like when she was talking about New York, that was like, mm. she talks about like the, the hot streets just like the heat emerging in the morning. That's exactly how I remember it. The way she described it made me very nostalgic. And that sort of ties into, I found it very surprising how modern this novel feels to me now. When her and Doreen, but when her and Doreen are going out on the town, you know, when they go out and they get like heckled at by those men, um, all of them are in like cabs and they're meant to be going to some like event. Oh yeah, but then they join those two men, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't there just like, this is meant to be 1953 and reading this reading it now i was like it feels very modern that feeling of like hitting the town and you get like heckled out and it it just didn't feel like it was the era that it was do you know what i mean like sure but i mean those things i guess are because since there's been like a concept of hitting the town how much of it really changes like you jump in a cab you've had a few drinks But, but, but that's what i mean because but think of where we were politically then and think of how how different life was in America then like the way she wrote it and I still got that feeling of like if I was going to bloody uh, I don't know just going to Guildford for a night you know what I mean like that that feeling was still there and she she um described it did you pick up on how many times she used the word gray to describe things no dude when you go for your eighth reread, look <laughs> Never out again. for it. No. Um, <laughs> I promise you, you, you can find the word grey, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, probably three times a chapter to describe something, whether it's like skies, hairs, moods. It's used so much. I found it, I found it twice on one page at one point referring to different things. It is a grey novel. It is. And I mean, I'm trying to look through my notes to see if there's anything similar to that. I mean, like even here, one page... It was death. My mind went dead. Um, I found her quite funny, you know. I was like, maybe this is meant to. I was like, maybe this is meant to be funny. Okay, see, I know, I know what you mean there. I find like lots of. I find it's quite a common thing that people take texts which are obviously meant to be slightly tongue in cheek, like far too seriously. I don't think that's the case here. I really from from this novel and from all the poetry I've read, I really do not see a sense of humour in Plath. Right, I put I put here for the first time. I thought I would actually love to meet Blair. She cracked me up with her bluntness, talking about the f- how the physics class was death and made her mind go dead. Like, she's funny. I mean, that is like funny, kind of like millennial language almost. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, um, when she, <laughs> there's a bit where she says, uh, whenever I'm sad, I'm going to die or so nervous I can't sleep or in love with somebody I won't be seeing for a week. Like, I was like, that's fucking hilarious. That is me. Like, I'm sad I'm going to die. I'm nervous I can't sleep or I'm in love with someone I won't see for a week. I'm just like th- she would she would have loved 20 fucking 20. Like she would have she would have so loved 2020. But without uh, not as like a an insult, but does that maybe say more about you than it does about her humor? <laughs> yes. 
completely. <laughs> the tweets she'd be putting out, my friend, that like, do you know what I mean? She'd be hilarious. She'd be so existential and um, just so morbid. But I mean, this is why I stand by and, and this like bleeds into other segments. Um, I, I think she'd be alive if she was born in the 90s, say, or the 80s. I don't think she would have killed herself if she'd been a, a woman now, which is a big thing to say. But if I put myself in her shoes as a someone that I relate to, but I was born in what, the 20s, 30s, you can see why her fate went the way it did. I mean, most, I mean, like, mostly just because, like, support for mental illness was so terrible, no? And just the, the shame and boredom of being a woman in the 50s, 60s. Like, I would have, like, ugh, it would have been so dreadful to be that bored. And any sense of liberation you get, you just feel this overwhelming shame, especially being someone from very Catholic Boston, as she was. And and even in the in the bits where she talks about you know having those hot baths like and she feels clean and then when she's even she gets really sick and she vomits loads and she feels pure. There's just this overwhelming sense that she feels shame at being, even like inching towards being a modern woman and having this freedom to do what she wants. There's like this shame attached to it, um, and a, uh, and a shame just attached to wanting more than than other women that she's around want, like in this fashion magazine or whatever it is. That's so true. She's like working for JD and she wants to be and knows she is almost like so much better than they are and can produce writing that's so much better than what they're doing. And yeah, I think you're right. She does. It does almost come across as she's like really like restless with her situation, but also like almost a bit like kind of... Oh, should I just find, should I just do what they say and just do these like boring fashion pieces? Yeah, there's even these whole segments where she talks about, she she judges everyone for being so shallow and being so uh, focused on image. And then she spends so much of her time talking about what someone's wearing or how she looks. And it all just like links into this, I think this complex where she's really fighting herself with like, I can be better. I can do like morally, I can be better academically, etc. And then also just being as shit as the rest of us where we it's so easy for us to be completely shallow and also the fact that she could very much settle into like being the woman that she, like the women that she sees around her there was like a nice segue into the next section on feminism i had like a few notes on it but mostly that was just um kind of i suppose partial surprise at like some of the horrific stuff that she experienced but one of the most, and also that she was quite ahead of her time, one of the most interesting bits for me is when she's talking about how um, when you get married, that's kind of like all men want. They kind of tell you you're going to be able to be free and do what you want, but then you get married and they just like expect you to be the housewife. So on, in my version, it's, uh, it starts at page 76. And she's talking about um, an article called In Defense of Chastity that she reads in Reader's Digest. She says, the main point of the article was that a man's world is different from a woman's world, and a man's emotions are different from a woman's emotions, and only marriage can bring the two worlds and the two different sets of emotions together properly. My mother said this was something a girl didn't know about till it was too late, so she had to take the advice of people who were already experts, like a married woman. This woman lawyer said the best men wanted to be pure for their wives, and even if they weren't pure, they wanted to be the ones to teach their wives about sex. Of course, they would try to persuade a girl to have sex and say they would marry her later, but as soon as she gave in, they would lose all respect for her and start saying that if she did that with them, she would do that with other men, and they would end up making her life miserable. 
The woman finished her article by saying, better be safe than sorry, and besides, there was no sure way of not getting stuck with a baby, and then you'd really be in a pickle. Now, the one thing this article didn't seem to me to consider was how a girl felt. And then she goes on to say, like, it might be nice to be pure, is the word she used. But then she's talking about kind of like the, the double standard and the hypocrisy of she remains pure and then Buddy Willard, like he does in this section, admits that he's actually like had sex or at least fooled around with somebody else. She writes, finally, I decided that if it was so difficult to find a red-blooded, intelligent man who was still pure by the time he was 21, I might as well forget about staying pure myself and marry somebody who wasn't pure either. Then when he started to make my life miserable, I could make his miserable as well. <laughs> that made me that made me laugh a lot, that bit. Yeah, but I just found that like a really, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how uh, like maybe progressive or forward thinking that was for maybe like the early 50s, which is when it's set. I found that hilarious. Do you know, what, like this is what I mean, she's funny. That's so funny. Yeah. That I, if I was stuck with a baby, I'd be in a pickle or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, word, the use of the word pickle made me laugh. I wonder if that was plath or if that's actually like the word that was used in an article that she read about the subject. But you think that that's quite quite forward thinking for, for I mean, it's set in, let's call it the early 50s because that's when it's set. Well, yeah, because, you know, she goes on to say, no, one thing the article didn't seem to me to consider was how a girl felt. It might be nice to be pure and then to marry a, and to marry a pure man. But what if he can suddenly fest? Yeah, he wasn't pure after we were married, like Buddy Willard. I love, I love that whole like part of the novel where she's making such a conscious effort to prove that she doesn't care about Buddy anymore. And then every other page, she's like, "When me and Buddy were skiing, um, and then Buddy had tuberculosis." And you're just like, you're just like every other fucking young woman who is in denial about the fact that you're in love with a man who. You have decided he's um, a horrible traitor because he's had sex with someone else. And she makes this whole point of of proving that she doesn't like him because he's... Just for all these stupid reasons. Even though... And I felt really sorry for Buddy at the point where she goes to visit him when he's ill. And he's like, what's he done? Like made an ashtray for her or something. And he's just being fucking cute. And she and she just is making such a conscious effort to, to say how terrible Buddy is. And it's so easy to see through like... You're talking about him every other fucking page like it's so like a young adult writer like writing like some rom-com like this could have easily been from that um it's in like one of these great works and she's just talking about how much she hates buddy because he slept with a waitress like uh, it, i just i love that element of it in, like that i hadn't really spotted before i was like she's just like because she's meant to be what like 20 she turns 20 towards the end of the book. Yeah, she's so young. Right. I hadn't thought, I thought she was, well, you think if she's in college, uni, um, and she has her birthday while she's in the uh, psychiatric hospital, um, and she turns 20. And and the, the like that kind of puts a flip on the whole thing. Like when I realized that, just how young she was, I was just like, this is really uh, a dark young adult fiction piece like that, that's what it is isn't it absolutely I th- for me it's like the counterpart to catcher in the rye aimed at women it is kind of like it's kind of like an impression i got when i was reading it because the catcher in the rye i mean it's it's much earlier than this um but it's also one of those books which kind of invented or like the concept of teenage identity but it it reads to me very similar as i said earlier and like yeah i think the, in a way that catcher in the rye kind of in some sense encapsulated like a lot of the uh, issues that maybe young teenage men because i mean the character in catcher of the rye is 16 i think at the time oh wow okay. maybe like encapsulate some of the issues that those young 
teenage men slash boys would have been thinking about this mm. kind of does the same for i'd say a slightly older yeah i hadn't considered it in that light until we just said it like how do you think she intended do you think she intended for this to be like the angsty teenage girl novel of the time or did do you think she thought this was going to be like art because i'd compare it to um i assume you haven't watched girl interrupted the 90s film with angelina jolie i haven't watched it so uh, when I was doing the, I haven't read the, I don't think you can call it a novel. So when I did this uh, A-level, when I decided, you know, we had to do a comparative essay and I was like the bell jar and I wanted to do Girl Interrupted. And my, I remember my teacher contacted our uh, exam board and said, can Holly do Girl Interrupted? Because it's basically an autobiography. Uh, and they were like, no. So I compared it to the yellow wallpaper instead. But when I was looking over this i was like it's basically girl interrupted and that film is just a girl who goes into um well the the, the work it's by uh susanna Kaysen, i think um and it's her just like slow descent into because that was the 60s as well um it's her going into a mental institution and it just felt very reminiscent of that like it's like the sad girl but like, maybe there is maybe there was like a lot of inspiration taken from this for that i don't know oh, there must well yeah that's what i mean like when i think of Girl Interrupted, like when you watch the film, it's sad indie girl central. I think I must have watched it like a hundred times in a year or something stupid when I was <laughs> deeply miserable in like year 11. Um, and there's no way this wasn't like the blueprint for that. Maybe we've all been looking at this wrong. Like the bell chart isn't this great work. It's just like a sad teenage girl writing what should have been an incredible feature film. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But a feature film like, that has like no plot, as we've already agreed. <laughs> how many indie films are like that now? True. But you could never put that, you could never make this a feature film because it would be so cringy now to do something. You couldn't make the bell jar into something incredible. I mean, there's been one. I'm pretty sure it was like Gwyneth Paltrow, who was like the lead. Um, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I've not. I don't think it did well and I don't think there was a great budget. Should I look it up now? Ah, oh, we should have watched it before we did this. <laughs> I don't think anyone's watched it ever. Yeah. Um, That's really interesting what you say about like, maybe this isn't necessarily kind of like great art in the sense of like fantastic mid-century American literature. It's just kind of like a young adult novel. But but this I'm saying, like if this came out in say, was 2013, obviously the whole narrative would be different. But can you imagine this would be for an indie filmmaker to turn into something like that's essentially what it is isn't it like, i know what you mean i know what you mean and it is really interesting to think of it as just like young adult fiction and maybe not this do you think maybe that the reason it's kind of regarded as this great art well actually no i don't know if i totally agree because like two things one she's one of the reasons maybe why it's regarded as kind of like this great art is because you already had a reputation as a really successful writer and poet especially but secondly as well well poet right what else was she putting out just poetry well i think the fact that she was writing for magazines and had written short stories that's all also true for plath i believe but also do you think because i would say no but do you really think that i mean for a start the the kind of feminist take on this which happens way before 68 or 69 right um, like maybe that had never been represented so directly before and also the issue of depression 
potentially with men it had been but like depression in women do you think that had ever been so like starkly depicted before this novel uh, i genuinely don't know the answer to that question i don't i i mean the yellow wallpaper have you read that tiny little i know it. i haven't read it though oh no yeah, no it's... that's a lie i have read it i have read it yeah I'm i think back, that's yeah. like the first time this was that was but is that depression i mean because she's like psychotic in it right 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 um, I, d- I, I don't know the answer whether there's been anything that extensive looking at depression in women. Um, but th- when is that? When is that from? Sorry, and who, who and who wrote it? Charlotte Perkins Gilman, 1892. Uh, it's regarded as an important early work of American feminist literature for its illustration of the attitudes towards mental and physical health of women in the 19th century. Yeah, so this not not in the same way that Plath has talked about depression in any way shape or form um but yeah maybe that's what i mean i'm not saying that um this is just an a young adult like piece of fiction in any way shape or form because it's much heavier than that but maybe it's hard to know what our intentions were like can you imagine if we if plath had been alive for even a year longer than she she was to talk about this in in more depth like because it's really just a work on its own isn't it that like is just completely overshadowed by her death and we have no real indication of what her intentions were in writing it. Maybe that's why it's so, like from my viewpoint, why it's so forgettable, the narrative. Um, because there's, there's nothing that she's ever said about it. I do also, just on the young adult point, in some sense we are being like a little bit snobbish because there's no reason why a book can't be literary and also aimed at young adults. And I mean, if we kind of agree that this is the aim of this book and (laughs) we are young adults, (laughs) sure. But young adult fiction generally refers to teenagers, right? Like, sure. And uh, like catcher in the rye as well. Like, I mean, is aimed at teenagers despite him not having been a teenager when he wrote it. And there's, I mean, there's, there's, they're not mutually exclusive. There's no, reason that something can't be really really good literature and yet still aimed at people who are under the age of like 20 sure Um, yeah Um, so yeah I just wanted to point that out because I kind of when I was saying it almost it felt like we were just almost beginning to dismiss it but at the same time because I'm coming from the the stance of like this is a great novel it's not particularly accessible to like like imagine a fifty-year-old man picking up this book. I'm I'm looking at this in a new light when I say it's like a young adult piece of fiction. This is like a new stance I'm having in. I haven't thought that before on my previous reads. That never came into my mind. So that's just a, an interesting light. Mm-hmm. It's super interesting, though. I mean, have you read um, uh, Bright Lights, Big City? No. You can assume any question you're going to ask. Have I read? The answer is no. <laughs> Make that assumption early on. Um, Maybe you shouldn't say things like that on a literature podcast. <laughs> well, hey, let's remember, I applied to do literature at university and I thought, hmm, sounds like a lot of reading, I'll do law. So I made my decision, I stick by it. <laughs> I mean, that's what I did as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I changed like two weeks before I got there. Bright Lights Big City is, I mean, I guess a little bit later than this, I think. I think they may, I can't, I can't remember who it's by. I'll have to add that in later. Jay McKinnery. 1984 but it's also about a young man it's written in the the second person which is always quite interesting it's also like really focused on mental health and he moves to a new city as a young man i also think he's maybe 22 in it or something or or you are because it's written like the second person and it's also that same thing it's quite a famous book regarded in some senses as like a modern classic in the in a similar way that like this is in Catcher in the Rye and kind of encapsulates a more modern 
take, I guess, on like what it's like to be young and to have moved to a city. And I mean, it, I, I really enjoyed it when I read it. It's far more like postmodern than this is, so kind of even more meta and more confusing. Um, even more meta? I know. How? How? Can you, can you imagine? I wanted to, a few pages after the bit we just talked about, Buddy Willard. She says, I tried to imagine what it would be like if Constantine were my husband. And then she talks about how she'd have to just like be a housewife and like making breakfast and dinner and kind of <laughs> and dwaddle about in her nightgown and curlers. And then she says, like, this seemed a dreary and wasted life for a girl with 15 years of straight A's. <laughs> and then a little bit later on, she writes, um, in spite of all the roses and kisses and restaurant dinners, a man showered on a woman before he married her, what he secretly wanted when the wedding service ended was for her to flatten out beneath his feet like Mrs. Willard's kitchen mat. Then she moves on and says she remembers Buddy Willard saying in a sinister knowing way that after I had children, I would feel differently. I wouldn't want to write poems anymore. So I began to think maybe it was true that when you were married and had children, it was like being brainwashed. And afterwards, you went about numb as a slave in some private totalitarian state. It's pretty like intense like violent language for just having children and being married well this is what i mean you're right and there's me saying um she'd make it as a modern woman because she's bored of you know the options you had then but she it's still very much uh the norm for women to get married and have children now like as you said this is very modern if not yeah, you're right. It's it's very extreme language for just marriage. Um, although, I mean, there's a movement, um, a strong movement against marriage now because it's a contract in which a woman is property. So I can see that. But yeah, what's your point? Well, you, I just wanted to say, I mean, just off the back of what you said that like, you know, it's still kind of the same today. That might be true in maybe America, <laughs> but in like lots of kind of functioning social democracies in Europe, uh, like Germany, for example, or you know, pick a country in Scandinavia. You know, like like yeah. childcare policies are really quite progressive, and women are much mm. more easily able to um, go back to work after having had children than they are in places like the UK and America. I mean, I'm sure, but I mean, it's it's still like a radical idea that um, to really accept how crazy marriage as a concept is, like the fact that. It's it's a contract of signing off, pro- like property, essentially, isn't it? Like, I, I'm sure I'm sure there's like if um, essentially if a woman like bailed on that contract, a father would have to pay damages to her prospective husband. Like, so like this is how archaic it is, right? And it's still a radical idea of accepting how archaic that is. So obviously, in some countries, it's not this crazy idea that marriage uh, isn't the norm but I th- it's funny to listen to that in light of like the 50s and see that now like she like she's ahead of me and thinking like that do you know what I mean like I'm like most of us are still like hmm, maybe one day we'll get married and she's like uh slavery like it's interesting that you say that right because she doesn't put it in those terms and I wonder if she really thought about it in those terms because the way she looks at it is from what I read in the novel is just like observing other women who've been in marriages and knowing women who like maybe wanted to be and who were ambitious and wanted to be successful got married and as she says like became doormats or whatever the line is they're flattened out underneath their husbands like kitchen mats. Well, well, that's the thing because everything is in light of what she's heard because she's 19. 
at this time. And that's why it's so interesting to put it in that light. Like, and this is why it's very easy to call it a, like a sort of a young work of fiction when you think about the fact that actually Dr. Nolan towards the end of the novel puts like hinges so much on, you know, they go, they go to like a sexual health clinic or wherever they get, they go to the doctors and she loses her virginity because so much hinges on Esther worrying about her virginity and like sex. And that's when you start to realize like as much as the, the thoughts she's having in the whole rest of the novel are quite mature, she's still a baby really. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Just like worried about, either remaining a virgin or still being a virgin, like whatever it may be. Do you know what? That reminds me of the part where she um, is talking about how suicide's a sin uh, to Catholics, right? And she she does that little segment about um, becoming a nun. I literally tweeted about a week ago, is there a nunnery which doesn't involve religion? (laughs) Which (laughs) I was like, where it's just women only, where we're just like, we are devoted to our emotional well-being and thriving <laughs> and like so many people i know were like haha that's so funny yeah like count me in and i was like fuck and i read this and i was like yeah i'm i'm too much like esther <laughs> <laughs> just thinking conclusion in terms of the the feminist side of it it was ahead of its time but um i did i did have moments where i felt very sad because i as i've said before though i i think the the bulk of her confusion and like sadness as a woman I don't think she'd have faced that now. I think, like, I, I was just thinking about it from, you know, when she got home from college and the options she had, she was like, oh, should I learn shorthand, blah, blah, blah. I would have felt exactly the same. And I mean, I th- it's just sad to imagine, like, I mean, you, you can say that about any woman who killed themselves or died tragically, but just imagining how different it would have been for her if she'd have been born 30 years later, even. I think it was very much she was a victim of time and yeah well it, i mean interestingly in kind of two senses she's ahead of her time in that you know had she lived past 69 and experienced the sexual revolution then as you say things probably would have been really diff- different for her but at the same time maybe maybe this is quite representative of how many women were thinking in kind of the build up to the 60s you know you have to remember this is 63 there's there's so much going on like i don't know exactly the month it is it was published but like in this at this time in america the civil rights movement is like properly properly kicking it's been going on for ages obviously but it's properly kicking off at this point kennedy gets assassinated in this year and the vietnam war is you know about to start you know you know as well she, she was living in london at this time wasn't she? She lived. She died in London. She had been in London for quite a while. I wonder how that puts her. But that's exactly what makes me think. This is pulled from her life when she lived in America. Do you know what I mean? Like, but how was? I mean, you're a history grad. How were things different in London to America in the sixties? Well, uh, how are things different? I mean, in loads of ways, obviously, <laughs> like. The UK isn't isn't having presidents assassinated or prime ministers assassinated, and isn't like embroiling itself in like a, a crazy like proxy war in Southeast Asia. Um, and at the same time, I mean, I mean, women are still super oppressed at the time. Uh, but uh, I don't know. You know, we we already have universal healthcare at this point. There are. At some point during the 60s, I'm not sure exactly when they start, there are anti-apartheid marches going on um, in, for 
like in support of South Africa. The new left is starting to properly like gain its foothold, which like is really still influencing influencing us today. Assuming she's writing this in like sixty two, let's say like a year before its publication, the mods and the rockers were already a big big thing, and like the mods and rockers conflict had like a big in my opinion, like a big influence on also like women's identities because you could almost be seen in the gang, like apart from the fighting on the beaches, as like an equal as the mod or the rocker. I mean, to some extent, obviously, not completely, but... I I just find it interesting to consider that in the last years of her life, she was in the UK. Like, we just don't think of that, do we? No, I didn't even know that until you just said it. We're Teddy Boy. Mm, Head and oven, you know? Um, Did, didn't she, like, leave out cookies and milk for the kids or something? She, yeah, she put towels down uh, to block the gas from the door, yeah. You know, that's, there's some theories which say they think it was an accident. I know, doesn't... I, but for, for the listeners at home, Holly's... Holly, Holly hung her head in disbelief. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, are they fucking mad? What do you mean? She put towels down to stop the gas getting out. Like, how could that have been an accident? Yeah, she to protect her children. Um, but okay, let's talk. Let's talk depression. I mean, suicide. Perfect segue. My main question, I guess, or maybe the first question, which you kind of mentioned earlier, you touched on it earlier. Am I depressed? Was yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, was whether you found it difficult to read because I found it. I mean, the headspace I was in when I read it initially, which must have been, if not in college, then just before I was somewhere between, <laughs> yeah, somewhere between like fifteen and seventeen when I first read it. Which was, as you say, bad times. Don't we know? Don't we um, know? And I found it difficult to read in that sense. Like, I've read lots of bits of it and I've got notes in the margins where I've just been like, wow, this is relatable. Like, oh my God, that was me, like, 10 years ago or whatever. And I'm just wondering if... I was just wondering if you had kind of a similar experience. I... So, when I first... Or maybe when I read it uh, the first five times... Um, <laughs> Now, this is going to sound morbid, but I, maybe this is what she intended. I found it comforting. Okay, that's like. interesting. Yeah. Um, In that you weren't uh, but, the only person experiencing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't say I related to everything she talked about, especially when she's in New York and, um, you know, that this whole hot baths to feel pure. And um, there's a lot of it I didn't relate to. But I think when you are 16, 17 and feeling very morbid and there are these extremely morbid chapters i i found it comforting i I found it extreme and obviously it's just by nature as a human being you're going to find it depressing but i found it comforting but when i read it this time around i did find it as being in a better headspace than i was the other five times i've read it yeah i found it slowed me down a bit especially the scene where she decides that she's going to kill herself in the bath and she can't quite do it because she thinks oh my mum will come home before I've done it so she just like does a little tester and she like cuts her leg I found that hard to listen to just imagining someone else do that too close to the bone yeah yeah uh, yeah I think so but I mean I didn't find it hard because it's not there's nothing really emotional in it it's it's very and this I mean when we when we talked about the narrative jumps she'll talk about I don't know, being in the park in Boston um, and reading the paper and then she's at the beach and about to drown herself and then she's 
there was literally a chapter where it was just like every narrative jump was the new way to kill herself yeah yeah and you're like i made a note of saying is that down to the ect that she'd had did that maybe make her more depressed the traumatic experience she'd had with that ect and seeing dr gordon i don't know i found it in the way that she condensed it i think she'd done a great job of making it a very morbid chapter that was quite hard to read i took several breaks between that and i found really hard to read that scene where she's at the beach with her friends and she goes to swim out and drown herself and I think she does a good job of making you feel isolated in the sea with her. Even though it's not that descriptive. Goes to find that like rock, doesn't she? Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, that's, I feel that. And it's quite heavy. But as a whole, the stuff that I found hardest to read, I, I mean, I think for everyone, the hardest bit, maybe not everyone, but is Joan's death at the end. Because debate me if you'd like, but I think Joan is meant to be Esther. How she what, what could have happened to Esther? Because I had to flip back because I remember she she brings up Joan. She's like, oh, they, I had a visitor and it was Joan. And I was like, who the fuck is Joan? And I flip back and realize it was someone that Buddy had dated. And I looked at the descriptions and they say, you know, they're both like tall and quite successful, like high achievers. And they both end up in institutions. And besides Joan being a, a gay legend, that's really the only difference. And just being a bit annoying. That's about it. You say and a gay did, legend? Did you not think? Yeah, Joan's gay. I totally missed that. Oh, no. Joan is a big old lesbian. We love to see it. No, you didn't catch this? Did you not see where they Esther knocks on the door and Joan snuggled up? Oh, shit. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And Joan says to Esther, like, I like you. And Joan's like... No, jo- yeah. Joan says to Esther, I like you. And Esther's like, ha-ha, Joan, you're revolting. Um, doesn't quite say that but i'm trying to find it i kind of just i think i kind of just read that bit as like well so did i every other time i put in my notes how did i miss this well i also read it as kind of like stuck in this institution with kind of nobody else to have sex with yeah uh, maybe i had it when i first read it but then i looked at it in the light of okay we've got it's hard being a straight woman in this situation imagine if you're a gay woman in this situation and the person you like you've just had to take to the hospital because she's lost her virginity to a man and she's hemorrhaging and then next thing you know she's killed herself wow so did not make that connection yeah yeah yeah. i didn't before um yeah because that's almost like the climax isn't it when when they find joan but it's an annoying climax it's the very end and that's why i think joan is meant to be esther's esther's double in this because the only reason we bring her back is to see what could have happened to esther if she hadn't have grasped onto whatever light she grasped onto and made it through and you know we assume went back to college after her exit interview from the exit interview after leaving the institution but really that's do you not agree that's really joan's only purpose is they've made she you know she's made her different enough to not be esther but she hadn't thought about it like that but it's a really interesting take for sure most of mine as i say was just me reading through and being like so many kind of super relatable instances of like you know everything's referred to as gray as i mentioned she sleeps like all the time just like she's sleeping all the time but then when she really needs to sleep has crazy insomnia you know how did you find that as uh, an ex or current insomniac i don't know uh, it comes and goes um mm, how do you find that i mean really relatable but like she sleeps way more than i do <laughs> oh you tell that to james Wilson five years ago <laughs> <laughs> yeah true but like, jesus you got it lucky mate um <laughs> yeah but i i, I don't know because her like sleeping all the time i think was such an in your face obvious symptom of depression that people find it so difficult to get out of bed and 
spend all their time, like lots of their time in bed sleeping and you have no energy and stuff. Um, and I mean, that's like a super relatable part for me, even if the actual like falling asleep part wasn't necessarily. So there was that. But lots of it was just also, you know, I don't know, like, yeah, like the self-harm was just like too close to the bone. Like I found it a difficult book to reread in when I'm in now in a place where like I don't feel like that anymore you know almost like a kind of just really like (laughs) like flashbacks of how it used to be in like a not very nice way (laughs) yeah yeah I I I felt the same way and I think um it gave me glimpses of when I found that like nicely relatable as opposed to like horrific to relate to it so like if that makes any sense yeah that was that was hard like that was like really the only bit it was that like one chapter where it's just like a very erratic person like erratic suicidal person and I think it takes if you know anyone who reads that could probably it could take them to their darkest moments um she did a very good job of that in terms of those quick narrative gaps she's like trying to drown herself on her own on the beach she's trying to hang herself and then she's like with friends on the beach and I think actually that in that part specifically where she's gone to the beach with friends and it's meant to be a lovely day out I think that's one of the only times that you see that element you know I think it's very relatable for anyone who's ever had depression where you're out with friends and you're having a great time on the surface oh oh on the surface but she's trying to drown herself pew pew sound effects explosion um yeah, I think that was, but that's one of those moments that I found the darkest in the chapter. It was like, ah, oh, she's like gone for a swim with her mate. And in her head, she's telling us like, mm, so I'm going to drown myself now. That was rough. Yeah. And don't you think, yeah, like that was definitely rough because, you know, probably both been there where you're like outwardly like, yeah, this is great. I'm having such a fun time. Uh-huh, I'm at a party. I'm going to cry jump, all night. Jump off no this one's bridge. seen that before yeah. <laughs> from Holly Rain's earlier. <laughs> Um, and you're right I think that was really nicely done because she managed to kind of describe like this probably quite beautiful beach that was quite busy and like really blue skies and this lovely ocean in a way that was like horrible and really really isolating and depressing I mean you're you're set up for that kind of description throughout the rest of throughout the like preceding parts of the novel for sure but it's interesting how much she was able to make this kind of like lovely day out on the beach seem like just sort of like the worst thing in the world I found one of the things that um I would have loved to have seen more of was her mum's perspective but we get this idea that her mum was just like this background like not really caring or noticing her depression well this was it as well we don't get an idea of how Esther's depression is affecting anyone else until we read those articles like those headlines of the fact that Esther had been missing for days and she tried to kill herself and I think that was quite I like that she told the story in that way, the fact that she'd been missing for days, the police were looking for her, and her mum had gone down to do the laundry in the basement and found her. I think that was quite harrowing, actually. Like, we we only hear of Esther's mum from her perspective, and she just is kind of like a burden, like, just always there and not really getting it. But that's how everyone feels when you feel like that. Uh, Right, right. And I think that was nice that she included that. Um, I almost wish we had more of that. Yeah. Like, these little snippets of Esther's mum, because this whole novel makes Esther... Everyone seems like a nuisance and irritating to Esther, mm. which is, yeah, how you feel when you might be depressed. But 
we don't get any sense of like she was missing for how many days like three days and she crawls into some like tiny gap in the basement the two things i think that are so interesting about that is that like she was able to write that that you know all of these people were worried about her in a way where you as the reader you still see it from her perspective and i didn't think about like you did i kind of still got it through this like real gray prism of like her mind and um the other thing is not doing what you said not giving her mum some more space not giving some more space to show how her mother feels again comes back to this kind of like young adult idea i think where Mm -hmm. it more shows exactly how you would be feeling if you were this young misunderstood in inverted commas yeah but i feel like we only get that when we realize when her mum comes to see her and brings her roses and says esther do you not know what day it is and esther says oh i thought it was saint valentine's day for a moment and she says no it's your birthday and i think that's a really sad moment where i genuinely felt not for esther but for her mum where her mum's come in and that makes you realize how much her mum has been monitoring her for this whole time we just don't get to see that because i'm because esther just feels like this misunderstood young woman. Yeah, and, and I think that's a really relatable and heartbreaking aspect of it for anyone that went through that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know you know that her mum... ...get better again? Like, I knew mm, you'd... Yeah. Something along the lines of, like, I knew you would stop letting yourself be sick or you would, something? You wouldn't be like those people or... Yeah. Exactly. Something like that. And it's like, you know, it's like obviously like the last thing you need to hear and all it does is, like, put more pressure on you. Yeah. But as you say, like, it totally shows that her mum, like, obviously really, really wants her to be well again. Yeah, it's it's sad as well. Like, when you think about, it, actually, one of the scenes that I... Scenes, I say scenes like it's a, a film. Yeah, because I can see it. I can, Bloody Zuma. I know, but I can see it. It's where she's on the train back from New York and she's got blood mm. on her face. Do you know, why does she, from where she was attacked by the Marco, the woman hater, which is a whole, that is the one part of it. We'll, we'll go there. But that was almost one of the most like, horrible bits for me where she's on the train home and she doesn't care that she's got blood on her face and she doesn't want to smile because she knows she'll crack the blood. You do get to that point where you don't really give a fuck about how you look though, right? Right. Or or you've been in that place where it's a bit too close to home and you you read, like I was reading her write about this in such a, I was like, oh, I don't, I like that, you know, when you say, is it hard to read? There are moments like that when I was like, oh, that's too close to home because it's not my present, you know, that's not who I am now. But at 20 years old, which is not that long ago, but do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah and and I think she hits it on the head where it's very uncomfortable she says like um there are weirder sights than someone like me with like blood on her face or whatever um and it's like no there's fucking not um and also just that really bizarre scene where she throws all of her clothes away on top of like a Manhattan rooftop because she's you've wanted to do stuff like that though no oh wow I so have man like, no, um, she's like, there's this whole, like, I'm not shallow, I don't care about clothes idea that she's got going on. Do you think it's that? See, I, I saw it as just this, like, complete apathy for everything, which I so related to. Like, so much okay. just wanting to, like, destroy something that kind of was, like, superficially important to me. But, like, just because you just don't care anymore. Not nice clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel no. like this is I feel like this is present you projecting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I suppose it uh, is tempting. 
Uh, I mean, no, I'd love to do that on my phone. Sure. But not my, not designer clothes. Like, get out. Come on, then. I wanted to do it with everything, man. I wanted to, like, smash out my guitars and stuff. I just wanted to... I just wanted... It was just the feeling of, like, wanting to... (laughs) Not the guitars. I just wanted to do something that... It's going to sound a bit, but, like, banal. But I just wanted to, like, do something a bit, like, crazy. And just, you know, just for the fuck of it. Yeah, that's what it... That's, like, half of the novel, isn't it? It's just, like, her being, like... "Mm." Might do this. <laughs> like Yeah, yeah, yeah. And might, then often not doing it. Yeah, might travel to, to Massachusetts from New York with blood on my face and pretend that it's not out there. Like, not a <laughs> Like I read something really interesting the other day about this diagnosis of hysteria. Have you, have you heard or read about that? Oh, go on. It's, well, it's, it was like a diagnosis that was almost only ever given to women. Women, yeah, yeah. And women were just diagnosed with hysteria and it, was kind of, it kind of encompassed a huge range of symptoms which now are attributed to, to other things or attributed to nothing at all. And it basically only stopped... Well, one of the really interesting things I, I read about it was that... Um, sexual stimulation was often used as a as treatment for it naturally and by the turn of the century you could get vibrators as a household appliance iconic and they were a household appliance in uh like regularly you could find them in households before vacuum cleaners how crazy is that really in where here the u.s or everywhere like i i was i was looking generally um at the u.s yeah um Wow. Wow. But that's an interesting point in terms of uh, where did that dip? Like, where did that, when did we stop thinking that was okay? Well, yeah, sorry, I didn't actually get there. But uh, basically when Freud came about, for all of his work, which is sexist, when it came to hysteria, he said, no, actually lots of the symptoms that we kind of define as hysteria, however loosely, are just like a natural range of emotional responses for both women and men. But it it stopped being like a, a legitimate diagnosis, I think, I think in the 60s, which is like still crazily late. But kind of relates to this, you know, like they don't really know what to do with Esther. Yeah. She is like now she would be, I guess, um, either depressed or bipolar. And so they just put her in an institution and they electrocute her. I, I do have a question like for you, whether I miss something here. When she says she wrote that letter and her handwriting is, you know, when she first goes to see Dr. Gordon. And she's like, my handwriting. She pulls out this letter. And tears it up, Yeah, right? what's with that? She pulls, like, she gets out the pieces and she shows him. And then that's when he's like, um, I need to speak to your mum. No, I also didn't totally understand it. I kind of just assumed it was like a suicide note that she had written and then took with her that she wanted to show to him as like this kind of act of defiance, which then like tears up. But, but she said it was like her handwriting. She said that she'd written this letter to Jodie or whoever that she was meant to be staying with at college and that her handwriting didn't make any sense. Mm. And you and that's what you I I really didn't get it and it felt very significant because that was the moment when she was when they were like, "Yeah, you're being put into an institution." That's what I took from it. But yeah, you're right that she talks about how her handwriting is like illegible, right? I didn't get it and I yeah, I mean you we made the link of, you know, she, I can't read and that, that's like her lifeline. Plus lifeline, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which I think um, I don't know. But maybe that does link back to this idea of like women can just experience hysteria and have to be treated for this kind of weird, like undefinable. And maybe this is one of the things like I she can't write anymore because she's so hysterical. So let's institutionalize her. I don't know though. Maybe. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to say about depression, which I found like so relatable, on the line where she says, um, "It's uh, right after the." Um, 
the bit where she swims out into the ocean to try and kill herself. And then the next line is, that morning I tried to hang myself. Yeah, I had tried to hang myself. And on the next page, she writes, um, when people found out my mind had gone as they would have to sooner or later in spite of my mother's guarded tongue, they would persuade her to put me into an asylum where I could be cured. And then there's like a paragraph break and just a single line, which is, only my case was incurable. And I was like, God, that is so like teenage angsty to begin with yeah and also like so relatable when you think that yeah i know there are all these treatments but like i'm just like past helping (laughs) i made note of that as well yeah yeah find it find it i put she believes she's incurable it's classic that feeling that everybody else is mad that's mad can or should be saved like you should try and save them everyone else like you should try and save or they they can be but like when it comes to you you're like oh no 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 it's not worth it with me. Like, it's not worth it. Don't don't waste your time. It's just that, like, classic idea of, like, yeah, I'm sure there's madder people than me, but just, like, I know myself and don't waste your time. It's just, like, so, it's so funny. But even not teen, you can get to, like, I don't know, how old are you? Like, 40 now? Um, <laughs> 26. Um, 26, mate. It's not that old. Um, I'm just going to quickly hit up some Marco content. The woman hater Marco. That's just to, to wrap up. I think it's been interesting talking about like the style and really interesting talking about how we both saw her ahead of her time. And the, the, for, in some senses, I think the Marco scene also kind of it, it, like, almost displays like everything in one little scene about the novel. Like it's almost poetically written despite being so horrific. There's so much there about how awful men are to women and also kind of her anxiety especially in those scenes is I think like quite obvious well I mean so as I've said I I think that the novel's quite forgettable in terms of you remember bits but so when I was reading when I got to this bit as soon as I got to the diamond stick pin right you know that little diamond that he gives her as soon as I got to that I literally got shivers and I remembered like what was coming with this character you know when she says I've never met a woman hater before when I read it I was like you realize you've met this man so many times before as a woman like he's that classic charming misogynist you find that really relatable yeah, like I got this pit in my stomach when I thought about like this guy that is like a charming character. But I, I don't know even whether it's something that I've experienced before, which I definitely have meeting someone like that. But but just re just going over Esther's experience, I got a pit in my stomach because it, it was the only time in the novel where I'd seen, you know, like a motif like that or just like a word. And I'd remembered exactly how the story went. It was the only time throughout. Um, uh, and it just... So I, you know, I've, she says, I began to see why women haters could make such fools of women. Women haters were like gods, invulnerable and chock full of powers. They descend and then they disappeared. You could never catch one. Like, and as dramatic as it sounds, like when you think about true misogynists, like they charm their way in. They like walk all over a woman and undermine them. And then like as soon as they're nearly exposed they're like flee right like or as soon as women like builds up enough I mean this is you might not agree with this but like or as soon as like a woman builds up enough confidence and I'm talking about um like genuine misogynists who like get into relationships um and they control women and they gaslight them and as soon as a woman builds up enough confidence to like expose them they just like bounce and just like go on to the next and that's kind of what I saw in um this character and it just made me feel like 
Well, well, yeah, yeah. And then well, you see what happens where, well, th- this is one of the things as well, where she says, where he's a- about to do what he does to her and she puts, it's happening. I thought it's happening. Uh, and it's just like that, like devastation, that it's an inevitable thought for all women like that. Okay, this is when it's happening. Like it's happening now. Like, because it's always like it in the in your mind. So, okay, this could happen to you. Like some absolute misogynist could just use his power and do what he wants. And it's just the way she puts that, like, it's happening. And I was like, oh, that's so devastating. Like that bit where she's like walking around and she's like scantily clad. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just a very devastating scene. Um, yeah, it was hard to read. Um Especially because I, as I say, like I, I that I don't know whether it's like an ironic motif, like the diamond stick pin that he gives to her, and then after he's like attacked her, he's like, "Where's my diamond?" It's just like, um, and she almost doesn't sacrifice that. She's like wondering how much is this diamond worth, and then she realizes, no, he's he will actually hurt me if I don't give him this, and she's like, "Well, it's in the mud somewhere. Go find it." And like that saves her. It's just a very like the sacrifice of like, but like, like that's that they're his options. He's like either I'm going to find my diamond or I'm going to hurt you. And it's just like a really devastating scene. Just I don't know. It was just those lines of um, oh okay, it's happening now. Like this is it. And that I don't know. I think including that scene was a bold choice. I mean, even including that scene now would be a bold choice. Um, it just felt, and it's funny because it's set on like a golf course, right? Like they're in the suburbs of New York, and it might. Do you not do that when you read a novel and you um, do you picture it in somewhere that you know? For me, it was Pine Ridge, <laughs> but yeah, I think reading that scene was hard in terms of well, we didn't relate that back to feminism at all, but just the way she describes him as a woman hater, him as a woman hater, it, it just felt so very modern, like not at all. I don't, I don't know how to relate it back, but it was, it was, that was one of the hardest bits to read for me, even though I know it, it didn't end as badly as it could have done. Um, yeah, that was a horrible scene. Um, today I feel like if something like that was written, it would be kind of like potentially a really like lauded scene in a novel, right? Where like people would talk about and talk about like the bravery of having written it. I was almost, I think that's almost like what's surprising is it kind of like in the novel pops out of nowhere where she deals with quite like a harrowing subject. And and as well, the fact that like Doreen's left her and like she's trying to find Doreen after she's been attacked. And I I almost found that relatable. Like, I don't know if you've ever been on a night out where it's been, it's just, (laughs) just gone a bit too crazy. And you're like, I don't know if this is just like a primarily like predominantly a woman thing where, I don't know, you might be on a night out and something really shitty's happened and you realise that your friend is fucked off, not because they don't care, but because you've all just gone your own way. Um, and it's like a really scary idea. And for her, she's in like the suburbs of New York. And I feel like after that, that's really when it starts. I, I, I remember it being later on in the book, but I mean, of course she was still in New York then, but I don't know. I just found that a really nice, like a really well-described part of the book where she's talking about, she just like straight up says like I'd never met a woman hater before, and you're like oh shit you can feel it like I don't I don't know how you read that part of it but I mean your insight to it is much more interesting than mine 
I think it's it was just it's obviously a horrible scene to read um yeah I kind of because I couldn't remember much of the plot I, I kind of kept expecting her to get raped while it was happening um yeah but and then was very relieved when that didn't happen and then when I was I was I almost had to go back and confirm that that didn't happen like do you know what I mean like yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then when when it gets to the bit where she lost her virginity, I was like, oh yeah, now I remember that she doesn't that like, yeah. But did you, you you almost it seemed like you were going to say maybe did you think see this is almost like a turning point for like the rest of the novel or yeah I don't know how I did but I did because I felt like um, it was such a dark moment like it was very isolating for her and I just, I just looking back on it this is what I mean it was the one thing that I really remembered. So I wonder how that's meant to, I wonder whether there's a part of that that's meant to play in where she survived like quite a horrific assault um, or, or whatever happened to her. It's quite vague, but whether that's not explored enough either because it was so brief and because she had to be vague about it because that wasn't something she could go into detail about, but whether that contributed massively as well, I don't know. Because that's one of the last things that happens in New York. Remember, it's her last night there. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine that being an extremely traumatic experience, which then would absolutely affect what happens to her, how she feels when she goes back home. Well, yeah, she gets the train the next day after being assaulted by a stranger in like a suburb. Like, there's no way that didn't affect her. But it's something that would never be explored. Although maybe that is meant to link back to the fact that um, Dr. Nolan thinks that's something she needs to explore and that she needs to have like a positive sexual experience. Maybe that links in, I don't know, but... I feel like there's a lot in this novel that's easily overlooked that is possibly quite relevant. But as I said before, we have had, we've never heard anything from Plath, so we will never know. No. And this is why it's so loved to analyse this novel at A-level, right? Yeah. I mean, I picked it because I was morbid at A-level. My my teacher found it hilarious that I was looking at three uh, bloody crazy crazy novels and I was like mm, obviously I take it you never found your essay that you wrote on it I didn't um, and to be honest with you I have drawers under my bed that are full of stuff and I couldn't bring myself to I was honestly like I don't even want to see it if it's there based on the notes I've got in this in this book um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah well in conclusion then we agree that it was difficult to read due to the kind of relatively close to home depictions of depression very ahead of her time in terms of how she saw the role of women in society yeah and what she disliked about her place and quite nicely written shows her side as a poet while simultaneously being a relatively nothing narrative yeah and i definitely think had she have lived longer she would have written something much much more relatable to like the like an older audience um and something much less there would be much less of a condensed suicidal like it it wouldn't just be depra- i think it basically she would have written a lot more that would have been much better um not to slate it too much but well it's been really interesting and thanks a lot for giving your insights into this extremely navy gray <laughs> depressing novel did we make the word navy? Did we invent yes. that? I think we did. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Two hours of rambling. Good luck editing. It's been super good fun. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Always. Always. <laughs>
listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, it's really, really helpful if you rate it on whatever app that you're using. It takes two seconds and it really, really helps out. You can also follow me on Instagram. My handle is at the bibliographer. And you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at bibliographer underscore. Recommend to your mates and all that. And until next month.